Welcome to ON, Cultivating Student Engagement in Higher Ed. I'm the new host, Lauren Kelly, an instructional designer with UDIT Academic Technology Services. This reimagined podcast provides teaching perspectives related to instructors and students with a shift toward technology and innovation to add value to teaching and learning. This podcast focuses on innovative strategies and support services available to you, regardless of your course modality. I recently read an older article entitled The Challenges of Teaching Large Classes by Sarah Mays Tang. Sarah shared some great insights about teaching large lecture classes, and one of those things resonated with me. Sarah wrote that opening up misunderstandings without fully resolving them is really more risky in large classes. It is more difficult for students to reach out for help in larger classes, and the end of the lecture may signal to the student the end of their opportunity to understand the content. Asking or answering a question in front of a large audience could be intimidating, and office hours may seem not as accessible. This podcast will focus on strategies for large lecture classes from the perspective of three UD faculty members from STEM and the social sciences. Our hope is that what is shared in this episode sheds light on their stories, helping both new and seasoned faculty teaching large enrolled classes. I'd like to welcome my guests to the podcast. Let's do some quick introductions. Agnes Lee, Associate Professor of Psychological and Brain Sciences and Director of the Undergraduate Advising for Psych and NSCI majors, who teaches the Large Enrollment Introductory Psychology course taken by both majors and non-majors. Haritha Malati, Director of First Year Engineering and Assistant Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering, who teaches a Large Enrollment Introductory Engineering course taken by all undergraduate students and the College of Engineering in the fall semester. We will also have comments that will be shared by Lindsay Hoffman, an Associate Professor of Communication and Political Science, who is currently teaching a large research methods class required for communications majors, who was not able to join us for the podcast, but we will share her comments. I want to thank you in advance for listening to the podcast. I've been kind of following the literature a little bit, and the literature happens to be all over the place when we talk about class size and the effectiveness of student learning. Now, I have always taken these really small classes, anywhere from 25 to 30 students, and I don't know. I just know that if I were ever to be a part of a large lecture class that I'd want to be this unique learner. I'd want to stand out in some way. I would make sure the teacher knew my name. Does class size really matter? Why or why not? The short answer is yes, it totally matters. And for me, the the primary difference between like teaching a smaller course and a larger course is that level of personalization and the feedback that we can give. And so obviously, if you have a larger teaching team, like if it's not just myself, the easier it is. For many of us, we don't necessarily have a whole horde of people that can support us. So the larger the classes, the harder it is for me to really know who they are as individual people. And the harder it is for them to see me as more than just the person in front of a classroom. And then that also makes it like harder to cultivate their attention, especially when we're in this large physical space that is structured like a theater setting. It's hard for them to pay attention to that and to focus on that as well. Yeah, I completely agree, Agnes. I have been teaching this large lecture class for much fewer years than you have. So in addition to everything that Agnes shared, another challenge that I saw with the size of the class was 
navigating it during the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, the strategies that I had to use to run this giant class through the different course modalities like fully online or hybrid and so are in person. They're just completely different from the strategies that I had to use for the other classrooms. And also, you know, you have to just thinking about it from the student perspective, it, it is so much harder for them to not feel anonymous. And I know we're going to touch upon this a little bit later, too. In terms of course logistics from the instructor side and the instructional team side, but also from the student's perspective, I think it really makes a big difference, the, the size of the classroom. Do you all have those students that would be like me that are like, do you see me? I'm in a sea of students and I'm going to stand out and you're going to know who I am. So have you had experiences where you've had those students <laughs> like, like, well, I would be like that if I were in a large lecture class anyway. For sure. Definitely. I mean, I teach about 600 students every semester, 300 in each one of my sections of general psychology. And yeah, I mean, you know, just like you would imagine, like different people are different, different students are different. And I absolutely have those students who are the ones who are totally willing to raise their hand, make mistakes in front of other people, engage in risky, like I want to think out loud about these kinds of things. But I would say that the large majority of students don't necessarily put themselves out there like that. Or at least other students might put themselves out there not in front of the whole class, but they're going to come up after class. But I will say that things seem to have shifted a lot since the pandemic, where it does feel like students more than before are even less willing to engage in something they feel is risky in front of other people. And I think some of the things that they report are in line with what national reports say, like students feel like because of online Zoom, high school and all that kind of stuff that they don't know how to interact with other people or they don't feel comfortable with it as much as like before the pandemic. So that's something that I feel like I've observed. Completely agree, Agnes. And, you know, just to add a little bit more to that, something I have wondered is we all know that um, students show up to the classroom and they sit in a place and they tend to kind of repeat that through the semester. Mm -hmm. So I have wondered oftentimes if, you know, if there were students who would have loved to participate more and engage with us more, what if on the first day of class, they ended up sitting somewhere in the back of this giant auditorium and then they were just kind of stuck and just gave up on engaging? Because I definitely have noticed in my large lecture class that students who engage tend to sit in the front of the room and then those in the back don't engage as much. I sometimes wonder which one happened first, you know, is it the folks who didn't want to engage sit in the back or did they end up there and just kind of settled into that role? Uh, that's an additional challenge with such a large classroom. That's a really great point. I'm really glad that you brought that up because I know when I was going to school, um, from a small child going to school, I was always taught you sit at the front of the class so that you pay attention, so that you mm -hmm. can be this active learner. So I couldn't imagine sitting in the back because number one, I couldn't hear. And number two, I couldn't see as well. Yeah. So that is a really interesting observation as well. And I do think that that does play a role with kind of attention spans and levels of engagement. Absolutely. I would agree with that 100%. I think that's a really, really valid point. Yeah, Lauren, um, I'm so glad you said that because sometimes I have guest lectures come to my classroom and they say things like, I don't need a microphone, I can project. And while it may be true that these guest speakers are able to project, 
uh, they may not realize that no matter how well you project, the acoustics of such a large space means that some people are just not able to hear properly. So mm -hmm. I think there's an additional element of us being cognizant of ensuring that, you know, the slides are visible, that we're mm -hmm. appropriately designing the font and the color and so on, and mm -hmm. also making sure that everyone is able to hear us properly and mm -hmm. right. you know, trying our best to ensure that. That I think mm -hmm. really matters a lot more here. Yeah. That's a great point, because if you think about it, we come on Zoom and what's the first thing we say? Can you hear me okay? Can yes. everybody see me? But we yeah. don't do that in the physical space probably as much, right? Because it's just, you just assume everybody can hear you and see the board and or not, they'll tell you maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Not always. I, I was right. just meeting with someone who did a class observation and that observer was sitting in the back and was like, maybe it's just me. Maybe my glasses need a little refining, <laughs> but I couldn't see everything you were writing on the board. And then that teacher had asked the students and they're like, yeah, we can't see. And it was past the halfway point of the semester. And the teacher went back to their students and was like, why don't we see anything? So it's interesting. It's, it's always a two-way street. We should be cognizant. Mm -hmm. I need to be mindful of those things. I think we become, as people who teach more and more large classes, I think you just become used to like, can everyone hear me? Can everyone see okay? But sometimes you do need to rely on them also giving you some feedback too, right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Right. If things aren't accessible in the class or <laughs> link is broken, you would hope the students would let you know. You'd hope. It is larger for students to speak up, right? Yes. I've noticed in my, again, my limited experience that you have to constantly ask this right. uh, pretty much every week to ensure right. things are on the, on the right track. Yeah, sure. And I think Agnes made a good point about the pandemic hasn't really helped that because I think yeah. we probably already struggled with that challenge of some students speaking up mm -hmm. more often than not. Most students will not, especially if there's this large audience, right? They don't want to be broadcasted right. or embarrassed or humiliated in some way or wrong. But you make a really valid point that the pandemic has kind of made them more quiet and it's harder to get them to engage unless they're in a group. Let's give our listeners a little more context about the types of large lecture classes that you teach. So we gave a little bit of an introduction about the large introductory classes that you're teaching, mm -hmm. but give us a little bit more context in terms of the, the true size, those level of competencies, and then any other details that you would like to shed light on based on the courses that you're teaching. I teach the introductory engineering course that's taken by all the undergraduate students in the College of Engineering. So this adds up to about 700 students every fall semester, and they're all first semester students, hence it's, you know, introduction to engineering. So I have students from all 12 engineering majors that we offer here at the University of Delaware. There are also a few students who are admitted to the college, but not to a major. And these students are called engineering undeclared students. There are also a handful of students from other colleges or those who are uh, doing university studies. They're just checking out engineering to see if it's the right fit for them or they're just interested in learning more about introductory engineering topics. I've been here at UD for about 10 years and so I generally teach at least two sections of Psych 100 every semester. It's a breath course. So that means every year I teach over a thousand students here at UD. So it's kind of cool because it's one of the courses where I literally have students from every single corner of UD. 
So I have students who come from the associate arts programs that we have on the other campuses in Wilmington or even sometimes from other campuses as well. We also have engineering students. We have everybody under the sun at UD. So it's actually really kind of cool. And it is predominantly first year students. So I would say maybe about 80 to 90% of the students are first year students as well. And so because of the diversity of our students, it's also the biggest range of motivations, the biggest range of like backgrounds as to what they think about psychology, whether they know what it is or what it is not. So it's one of those courses that's like equally challenging as well as worthwhile to give them a sense of like what psychology is and to give them that sampling platter of everything that it has to offer and how it then relates back to like whatever they actually are interested in too. And so each of you is teaching how many students would you say a semester? I teach about 700 students and they are enrolled into two separate lecture sections. So each section is around 350 students. So my each section is around 300 students. And then I usually teach a third class. So add another 50 students to that. So uh, in each semester, I'm generally teaching around 350 students or so. That's a lot of students. <laughs> That's a lot of students. Right. <laughs> I don't know how you all keep everything straight. Well, at least I don't have to memorize that many names. Yeah, I would think that that's a lot of names. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. Now, Agnes, you TA'd before large lecture classes. You were a student in large lecture classes, and now you are teaching large lecture classes, right? That's right. So you just you just want to keep on doing this. You, you wouldn't know what to do if you had a small section of classes. You wouldn't know what to do. <laughs> It's true, but I have taught small classes. I have taught classes as small as 18, but it's a really different skill set to pivot across these different kinds of classes, across different topics as well. Yeah, it's funny you say that, Agnes, because my fall semester is the 700 student class. And then my spring semester, I teach a class with 38 students. And they're in every way the opposite because these are mostly seniors, graduating seniors. It's a technical elective course as opposed to a required introductory course. And I chuckle sometimes because when I say 38, some people think it's big. And then I tell them about my fall semester class, which every section has 350 students. So size is always relative. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sure that you... You get a lot of respect for the fact that you manage that sheer volume of students. And yes, a person like me would think 38 is a lot because I'm teaching two class sections and there are 30 students each. And for me, that becomes a little bit to juggle when I have more than two. I think I might have tried three once. That was just really too much for me. I could not imagine juggling what you all juggle. And keeping all of that in mind, this also means that there was some first teaching experience based on teaching these large lecture classes at some point in your career. So can you talk about what that was like? I think I alluded to this a little earlier. I started my faculty position here at University of Delaware in fall 2020, so smack in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. And this is a fall semester course. So fall 2020 was my first experience teaching the course, and it was 100% online. In fall 2021 was my second time teaching the course. And then COVID-19 was still prevalent enough that it was risky to have 350 students in a single space. So I had to navigate teaching this course kind of in a hybrid format where the large lecture material was all asynchronous online 
online, but the students met in person in smaller groups in discussion sections. And then finally, in 2022 was my first time actually having an in-person experience for both the lecture as well as the discussion section. Do you feel like online prepared you for what you experienced in person with that number of students? Is that a fair, (laughs) fair assessment? Not really. I think what it did help me was it onboarded me towards teaching the course itself. So in the sense that I I was familiar with, I figured out how to do team projects and just the content of what it means to do a survey of the engineering disciplines. The course I teach is also the first year experience course for College of Engineering. So there are some common topics of basically what I call how to be a college student topics that I have to, you know, teach in my class. So I kind of figured those pieces of it. I learned how to run discussion sections and how to do teamwork. So all of those things were the things I learned in an online manner. So it was more like me, it was focused on me, which I Mm -hmm. think is an experience that perhaps everyone can kind of identify with because the student voice was quite anonymous um, during these online periods of time, right? And then I slowly transitioned into, I think I'm finally at a place where I'm happy with the course modality. And now I can start really thinking about putting my own brand on the course, really thinking about course design and learning outcomes and really iterating over that. I think I finally feel like I'm able to do that now. So that first experience, you know, you you had the experience online. So kind of in theory, you kind of had to lay the land down. But when you came in face to face, what was it like? Was it intimidating? Was it overwhelming? I have heard this from my colleagues who used to teach this course before I was hired, that it's like doing a TED Talk every week. And it really does feel that way. There's a whole (laughs) different presence you need to have to command that classroom space. Of course, we are all proponents of active learning. And I had to learn how do we even do the logistics of active learning with so many students in that space. So for sure, I was intimidated. I remember going and checking the classroom before the semester started and then just seeing the sea of empty seats that would soon be filled with bright young faces. And it was quite intimidating. (laughs) I don't think I came down from that cortisol high for the entire semester. Oh, wow. Well, you kept coming back. So there must have been something that you liked about that, right? (laughs) Yes, for sure. And I'm sure Agnes can speak to this. I love teaching this course. We wouldn't be doing this if we didn't think that there was great student experiences that can come out of this classroom. And I'll let Agnes talk about her experiences. Yeah, I mean, no, I love everything you just chatted about because it's it's true. And it's really nice to hear these stories, too, of how we progress, too, because one of my students once was like, oh, I want to like present like you do, like without any notes and naturally and everything like that. I'm like, yeah, but you didn't see the 20 years that it took me to do this, right? The very, very first time I taught in a large lecture course was actually when I was a TA or a teaching assistant for an infant development course. So as you previously mentioned, I like basically grew up in large enrollment classes. So this class was maybe four to five hundred students. And it was the very first time I looked out to that sea of faces and it was the worst thing ever. <laughs> it was it was so bad. And because I was so <laughs> nervous, I basically spoke at the fastest pace you could possibly imagine anyone speaking at. <laughs> 
Um, and you could see like the students were super frazzled, like, what is she doing? <laughs> best. And um, it basically was so that I could just finish, <laughs> just get out of there. My hands were shaking. I had some notes, but I couldn't read them or hold them because my hands were shaking so bad. And, you know, today, when I look out at that sea of bright young faces, it's wonderful. It's like the the new group of folks I get to spend a semester with. But back then, looking at that sea of faces was like looking at a sea of like monsters or something. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just <laughs> incredibly intimidating. You know, I was just really awful, but I loved it. And at the time, that was all I knew, really. You know, I yeah. I love yeah. it. You, you will yeah. keep coming back. You yeah. keep coming back. So do you still get nervous? I sometimes do, actually. It kind of depends. Sometimes if it's like a certain topic, I might still feel nervous presenting it. It's not nervous in the same way. It's more just about how do I deliver this content, especially if I'm teaching something that's a little controversial or has some sensitive nature to it. It's risky. Some things that we do are risky when it's so big. That is less risky when I teach my 18 students. I can cultivate that intimacy. I can cultivate that trust. But when it's... 300 in a sea of faces, it's harder in that physical space to cultivate that attention, the nuance, the discussion, the trust. So because of that, I do get nervous when I do touch upon different topics. Like we talk about racism, when we talk about social psychology, Mm -hmm. we talk about, you know, how brain science has been misconstrued to support things that are, you know, just against people. I believe it's important to teach about those things. Those are why psychology is important. But those conversations are really, really risky ones to have in a, in a 300 person class. So that still Absolutely. gets me really nervous. Yeah, it's hard to not be the person who's sitting on a soapbox and just <laughs> talking at our students, because it's harder to facilitate bringing in all of those voices from our students into the discussion for a variety of reasons. Like we've already shared that, you know, someone may be nervous to speak up, but also it could go the other way where everybody is is talking and then it could devolve into a messy situation too, right? So it's mm-hmm. really hard to navigate that. But oftentimes, again, from my limited experiences, students are not really speaking up as much. My fear right now is that when I talk about sensitive topics. So in my case, uh, I talk about climate change and sustainability and sort of the differences between the social perception of these topics and what the numbers actually say. And, and, you know, when we have that sort of discussion, it's harder to facilitate talking about it. And usually, I think from my experience, it has been me kind of presenting material to my students. So I'm still learning on how to cultivate that safe space and space where students can speak up in such a large classroom. It makes me think about how messy teaching is, right? And it's never really done. It's like this piece of artwork that you just keep coming back to and you just keep working on it. And it's just, it's just this continuous process. You've been listening to part one of this series where my guests shared their perspectives related to whether or not class size mattered, the types of large lecture courses that they've been teaching, and their first teaching experiences with large lecture class sections. Be sure to listen to parts two and three, where we'll continue this conversation. And if you like what you heard, please remember to subscribe. On is where you can always expect to gain ideas from our brilliant guests who will sprinkle their innovative strategies to help you add a little seasoning to your course design. Thanks so much for listening. 